Call Me Bedtime Stories, The Art of Soviet Children's Books. Once upon a time, there lived a beautiful people known as the Rowers, who sang stories of old, played triangle guitars, and danced with outstanding. They wore hats shaped like cups and made buildings shaped like onions and drank potions they called Little Water. They were a merry folk who loved to dance, play games, and tell stories. In fact, they were the best dancers and best game players in all the land, and best storytellers, too. There were the northern rowers and southern rowers and eastern rowers, and each had their own songs to sing and dances to dance and stories to share by the fire. But one day, an angry little bald man came along, leading his gang, the majority. And they stopped all the singing and dancing and fun. They took the rowers from the north and the rowers from the east and made everyone dance the same dance. They took the rowers from the south and the rowers from the west and made everyone sing the same song. Then they stopped all the stories and stomped out the fires because, you see, what that little man feared most was the spreading of truth and nothing spreads faster than a really good tale. But what he didn't know is, stomping out stories turns them into secrets, and secrets spread fastest of all. As I've already argued, communism and fascism are built on the same three pillars. First, revolutionary violence. Communists think it should come from the people, while fascists think it should come from the state. Second, forced community. Communists choose a group and force everyone into it, while fascists choose a group and push everyone else out of it. Third, totalitarianism. People usually define this as total state power, but a better definition is total ideological influence. That is, the state touches all aspects of life. Everything is political. Everything is a wedge issue, dividing in-group from out-group. Politically correct citizens from politically incorrect citizens. Slowly, the politically incorrect are not merely criticized, but vilified, not merely opposition, but evil. Problem is, folks tend to resist this kind of thing. That's why totalitarianism requires the indoctrination of children. Adults push back, but children are impressionable. And if you get folks when they're young, you can keep them for life. Think of the Hitler Youth, or the Great Japan Youth Party. Think of the Communist Youth League of China. Or Komsomol, the All-Union Leninist Youth, Leninist Young Communist League. Part of this indoctrination process includes doing away with classic children's stories, which may seem a bit silly because children's stories are totally harmless, right? But think of the stories you loved as a child. I'm willing to bet many of them were instructional tales designed to impart certain values. This is certainly true of almost all fairy tales, Aesop's fables, Grimm's fairy tales, anything by Shel Silverstein, Rudyard Kipling, or Hans Christian Andersen. These stories represent societal values that both communism and fascism seek to erase in their respective revolutions. So then you need to replace those stories with new ones that will impart new values, proper communist and fascist values. But classic children's stories are usually folk tales that evolved over centuries and contain the received generational wisdom of entire populations. 
They are also often told and retold by the finest authors of their cultures, and you cannot simply wipe this away and manufacture replacements. Well, it turns out you can, but the results are fairly pathetic. Fun to read about, though. Nazi children's literature is a subject all its own, and maybe I'll do a future post on that, but today let's have a quick look at some Soviet children's literature, starting with this illustrated announcement below. It's not a kid's book, but it is relevant. The left panel features characters from traditional Russian fairy tales, the Firebird, the Witch Baba Yaga, Fearless Ivan and his horse Double Jump, Krokodil Krokodilovich. At the bottom it says, Out with the mysticism and fantasy of children's books. The right panel features Vladimir Lenin giving orders as little Soviet comrades in red communist scarves toil on collective farms, in factories, and prepare for war. Every parent's dream. The caption reads, Give us the new children's book, work, battle, technology, nature, the new reality of childhood. The new reality of childhood. That could be the title of a science fiction horror movie. Here's a page from a book titled Vanyushka, the Red Army Soldier, which reads, I will know about everything in the world, reading about it in the newspaper. In our club, look, there's a loudspeaker. And there's an image of a young boy sitting on a bench next to a loudspeaker with a newspaper in his lap. You really have to chuckle at the notion that Vanyushka will know everything in the world by reading about it in a Soviet newspaper. But if I'm being honest, there's an aesthetic appeal to all this art. The messaging is disturbing, but the artists, who would not have been allowed to produce different work, were clearly talented. The next page is a minimalist, elegant drawing in black and white. From a book titled October 1917 to 1918, Heroes and Victims of the Revolution, in which the thoughtful Soviet propagandists took time to tell kids about the nation's heroes, a Red Army soldier, a sailor, a worker, as well as the villains, a factory owner, a prosperous farmer, a landlord, a merchant, priest. The page above reads, worker at the top, and then at the bottom, slaves become eagles. From what? Ask a worker. That's a ghoulish message for a kid. Yes, there are examples of grisly children's stories in other literary traditions, and the original story of The Little Mermaid should commit suicide at the end, but it takes on a far darker tone when the purpose is essentially a sort of political brainwashing. Here's another image from How the Revolution Was Won of a dining hall in blood red, and out the windows you can see dark blue masses. The masses are crowds, and inside the red room are figures in black cloaks sitting around, looking depressed. The page reads, The interim government was living out its last hours in the palace. All day long shots were heard outside the palace windows. At night the guns hit. From the roar, the glass rang and fell from the palace windows. Look at their faces sitting in misery, one with his head in his hands, the whole scene drenched in bloody red, all of them waiting to be slaughtered by the mob. 
separated from the vicious crowd by nothing more than a thin pane of glass. Now imagine being a young child and pondering these things as you stare at the page and being told all this is very good and as it should be. As noted above, manufactured art is awful. But so far, the examples we've seen have been morally awful, awful, but with pretty decent art. Here's one that is awful in another way, being boring as hell. The title is 80,000 Horses, a rhyming story that tells children the absolutely thrilling story of the Volkov hydroelectric plant. The title refers to the horsepower of the plant. This is a common kind of Soviet children's literature. The example above mostly... Uh, the examples above mostly justify the revolution or talk about how things are better now. Another obsession, as we see with this book, was celebrating Soviet achievements. Look, we have a big military. Wow, check out this hydroelectric plant. Another kind of Soviet children's literature involves books that teach ch kids to make things, such as their own toys, because they certainly weren't going to be buying toys in a toy store. So here's an image a layout from the 1930 titled Chimpanzee and Marmoset, which showed kids how to make their own toy monkey. Looks very fun. Okay, two more examples. This one, the 1931 book Mochin the Pioneer's Heroism, is an example of celebrating the glories of the Soviet Union. In it, a young pioneer, think Soviet Boy Scouts, helps the Red Army in Tajikistan. It's full of colorful illustrations and tells an adventurous tale. A good piece of propaganda, and the illustrator and author were no doubt proud, although within a few years, Stalin purged them both. Finally, we have the 1930 book, The Subotnik, which, like Mochin, tells kids to take part in Soviet glory. But instead of signing up to literally fight, some books tell kids to work in a factory or slave themselves in the farms. This book describes the story of a faceless young boy, which is disturbingly appropriate, who wants to help the railroad workers and finally gets his big moment when the railroad boss tells him to help unload a car of potato sacks. The boy is happy to help, and the boss barks orders at him, telling him, Eyes straight ahead, straighten your back, lift your chest, look happy. Now isn't that just a perfect picture of childhood joy? By the way, if you'd like to browse some Soviet children's book illustrations, I recommend the Princeton's archives, where you can search by subjects such as America, women, or boots. Also, here are two book recommendations. The Adler Collection of Soviet Children's Books from 1930 to 1933, and Stories for Little Comrades, Revolutionary Artists and the Making of Early Soviet Children's Books. Thanks.